Jones thought the world was going to end. It's a weird one because when I was working at CND, I remember somebody saying, um, oh, we should, we should think about having some kind of pension fund, you know, for staff. And we all just fell apart laughing, saying, well, what do we want that for? We're not going to be around. You know, the world is going to end and all this. It was March 1982, and Ellen was about to go down to the Green and Common Women's Peace Camp for the first time to protest at the RAF base storing US cruise missiles. I just felt like sitting there and reading the newspaper wasn't enough. I had to actually go and find out for myself what was going on. Ellen describes it as a vigil of thousands, although news reports call it a blockade staged by 250 women, which resulted in 34 arrests. Whether or not the media and police deliberately downplayed what happened, it was a life-changing moment for Ellen. I mean, it was just amazing that there were, I can't remember how many thousand women just turned up. I mean, we didn't know. We thought there might be, you know, 50 of us or something, not thousands. And then it just made, it was just an amazing, strong feeling of, I'm glad I'm here. In December that same year, Ellen went back and took part in the Embrace the Base event. This time there was no denying the numbers. 30,000 women joined hands and circled the perimeter of RAF Greenman Common. The land at Greenham, where the gates, where the um, camps were, was nine miles circumference, so there were different gates, and then they were all labelled with colours of the rainbow. And I somehow went, went to the gate I was at, happened to be Orange Gate, and I don't know how come I ended up at Orange Gate, but I did. And then just more and more women came, and then we just, you know, at some point held hands, and the gate nine miles was surrounded. And then we put um, pictures or flowers or peace flags or whatever on the fence and yeah and there was an amazing sound because you know this is obviously in the days before mobile phones and stuff and there were these great big clunky kind of radio things and um, we couldn't be like linked to any proper network so they were just like walkie talkies between people and so word was being passed about which gate was linked to which gate or whatever and then there was this massive sound when the whole thing was surrounded. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. This episode begins a three-part series about the Green and Common Women's Peace Camp. It will explore what went on in the camp, the questions it raised, and the impact it had on women who were there and those who came after. A few months after Embrace the Base, Ellen returned to Green and Common for a third time. This time it was no quick visit. She would stay for two years. But before we get into that, I want to delve into the whole history of the Green and Common Peace Camp and the context in which it emerged. The period after World War II, in which Ellen and many of the other Green and Common women grew up, was one of tense military standoffs. In 1955, the Warsaw Pact saw a collective defence treaty between the Soviet Union and seven other Eastern Bloc socialist republics. It was formed in response to West Germany being integrated into NATO. While no direct military action took place, there was significant expansion of military forces on both sides. The following year, the Suez Crisis left Europe rocked by Soviet threat of nuclear strikes against Britain and France. In 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis saw the US and Soviet Union lock horns over the storing of Soviet missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles from the US shores. It's considered the closest the world came to full-scale nuclear war. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, 
has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. In the 60s and 70s, international peace movements took root around the world. Tensions between both sides softened, with the strategic arms limitation talks taking place. But this period of calm didn't last long. In 1979, the Soviet-Afghan war broke out. The Reagan administration provided overt and covert aid to anti-communist guerrillas. With the unexpected force of the US armed resistance, the Soviets were forced to withdraw from Afghanistan. This paved the way for a takeover by the now infamous Taliban. It is against these global tensions that a group of 36 women from Wales arrived at RAF Green and Common in September 1981. They called themselves Women for Life on Earth and proceeded to chain themselves to the base fence, protesting the government's decision to allow US cruise missiles there. The women were removed, but set up a peace camp nearby within days. It would remain active for the next 19 years. In 1983, Ellen joined the camp. But what was going on there exactly? You wouldn't sleep that much because of the noise and the lights and uh, stuff, but you, there was a constant keeping the place going, like making sure there was water. Um, somebody would, there was always somebody who would take charge of cooking and you'd have to wash up and you'd do things like, and this is going to sound gross, but you would, when, you, when you'd been home and you came back with your big camping, what's it, plastic container of water, that would be used, you know, just shared. And so some would get tipped into the kettle, so you'd make tea. The kettle was on a fire in the ground. Um, and then, you know, when you went to bed at night, you would fill your hot water bottle. And then that hot water bottle water would be tipped back into the kettle to then make a cup of tea. I mean, nowadays, you'd be like, I can't drink that water. It's been in the hot water bottle all night. But anyway, you know, it's a case of survival, I guess. I mean, there was one winter when my hot water bottle, I remember um, turning over in the night and thinking, oh my God, I'm so cold. And my hot water bottle was just a solid lump of ice. And it actually froze. And the, um, to get out of my bender, um, it, it creaked. And I thought, why is it creaking? Because it's plastic. And the whole thing, they'd become igloos. It snowed and frozen in the night. So as we were pushing the plastic, all this snow kind of fell off. Yeah, that was a cold morning. But a typical day would be, you know, things like shivering and making tea. And But you'd walk. I mean, let's say it was nine miles. You walk around the base and just try and engage. Before the actual um, soldiers were armed, just make try and make friends with soldiers. Because you knew that at some point, if you were going to break in, you might see that same person. And if they... I mean, this is my way of thinking anyway. If they thought that you were actually okay, and this did actually happen, they'd recognise you and think, well, she's all right. I was talking to her a few weeks ago, you know what I mean? Uh, and we weren't, we didn't have anything against them personally anyway. They're just doing a job. And I remember 
one amazing more it was when it was snowing i'm walking around and you might walk from for ages and not see us all um I'm walking around and i had always had bolt cutters in my pocket um and you'd walk around and there was this one soldier and I kept seeing him and I'd sort of say hello morning or something in Welsh or whatever and they'd be kind of grunting as if say why are you speaking to me you know and then you do that a few times you see the same soldier and eventually they'll make a mistake and go oh hello and I oh whoops I shouldn't be talking to her very bizarre um, and there's one day I stopped and I'd, I'd been doing this and clocked the same soldier and I just stopped and I just said why are you here and he said, what do you mean, why am I here? And I said, well, did you join the army to sort of, you know, see the world and ended up in Newbury? I mean, you know, just just pushing for a conversation. And uh, did this a few times. Anyway, one day in the freezing cold, same guy, he said to me, do you want a cup of tea? So I said, yeah, I'd love a cup of tea, thinking oh, it's going to be army tea, it's going to be revolting. And... Um, Anyway, he poured from his army flask this tea into a mug. And bear in mind, there's a fence between us with razor wire on the top. And he put the tea without thinking and went boom against the fence. And then realised he actually couldn't give me tea. That's all he was doing, was giving me tea. And I said, don't worry about it. And I looked around, nobody looking. I got my bolt cutters and I cut a three-sided hole in the fence. Pulled it back. He passed me the tea. We shut the hole. I gave him back his cup. And from that moment, he didn't speak to me. He just We didn't say anything. He just carried on walking. And then another day, you'd sort of see him and, you know, so he used to do that kind of thing. I know it sounds nuts now, you know. In October 1983, Ellen and the other women would be doing more than snipping a few links to pass a cup of tea through. It was Halloween and a group of women dressed up as witches. It was not unusual for this to happen. The women often played on the symbolism and history of how their sex had been oppressed. This time it was a little different. This time they were trying to distract the police because while the witches were cackling, the other women were buying up every pair of bolt cutters they could lay their hands on. Went back to Wales with, um, this is West Wales now where I came from, um, with another couple of greener women and there was, because it's farming country, there was a farming shop, if you like, so you, you you buy stuff for the farm. And we knew that would be the only place we could get the great big bolt cutters, which are sort of, you know, almost a metre long. So we went and we said we wanted to, and they hired them. Um, could we hire a couple of pairs of these things? And they were like, oh, you know, it's something rather deposit. I can't remember how much it was. And because we'd been given some money by local women who couldn't make it to the camp or didn't want to go to the camp we had a little pot of cash so we used this as a deposit and you know otherwise we'd lose our deposit if we lost the bolt cutters then we went back to Greenham and there was this mass surrounding of the fence and at a particular moment everybody just cut and you know just sections of it just collapsed and yeah we all got arrested at that point I mean uh, when I say all I can't remember how many but an awful lot of women got arrested and um, because they took our bolt cutters and then the next time, a month or so later, went back to the uh, shop in Lampeter in West Wales. And I said to the guy, and I'm the Welsh one, I actually come from there, you know, my, my Welsh is local and I speak Welsh. And, um, and I said, uh, oh, really sorry, but we haven't got your bolt cutters. And we're like, oh, blah, 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 your deposit, you know, you're going to lose your deposit. And he said, well, how did you lose, you know, what happened to the bolt cutters? And I said, oh, we were at um, Greenham and uh, we were, and he stopped. He said, was it that was thing that was in the newspaper? 
And I said, well, yes, possibly. And he said, well, a load of women. He said, oh, never mind the deposit, love. And that was that, got away with it. But yeah, that was quite funny. Responses to the Greenham women weren't always so supportive, though. You know, around Greenham, Newbury, I mean, we used to get spat at if we went. We, we used to, you know, every now and again, you might leave the camp because you needed to go and get bread or whatever. And if they saw you in one of the shops, then, yeah, you'd get spat at. It wasn't only the hostility from locals they had to deal with. Obviously, all the camps were by a gate. Um, and if you were sitting watching and then suddenly you'd see the gates open and if the gates opened and you were quite close, you could run in. It sounds crazy. And I remember we were watching and there was, there was always some movement. You became aware of there's something going on here. You know, why is there more police? Why is there more whatever? And the gates started to open and me and a few others were very, very close to it. So we just sprinted, um, got into the gate and I got two MOD policemen uh, one either side who just lifted me up in the air. I don't think they didn't do it deliberately. Um, I think one of them thought he was going to grab me, but then another one came from the other side. And I got turned upside down and landed on my head on, on sort of concrete and uh, knocked out very briefly. And then one of the women from the camp, um, usually had a vehicle at the camp, drove me to the nearest hospital, which was Newbury. Um, and they refused to treat me because I was from the camp. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, I did have layers and I was a bit muddy and whatever, but they, that's how they knew you from the camp. Yeah, and they refused point blank. Do you think you were treated more harshly because you were women and if you'd been men, would it have been different? It would have been more violent, it would have been men. Oh, okay. So you think there would have been, it would have been as hostile? Um, I remember being a one demonstration in Brody, the one in Wales, where it was mixed and it was a similar thing, you lie down in the road and whatever, and the police come along and they start to move you. And one of the guys, I mean, he was, you know, a local hippie, but he, he said, you know, get off me. And he started to be stroppy with the police officer and the police officer got more rough with him. And then he, which is why one of the reasons I stopped doing, I didn't want to do mixed demonstrations because they, that's what happens. I'm not, I'm not saying all men are like this, but there's men of, will... They react differently to that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, lying on the road where there's three of you or 300 or 3,000 at Greenham, women just lying there in front of a massive truck. And one time we lay down when they brought in the horses and the horses just stepped over us like this. Horses won't stand on you unless, you know, unless you do something, unless the guy on the horse tells them to. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got, you know, you'd, you'd lie, you'd sing, and I mean, there's pictures of police officers scratching their heads, like, what do we do with this lot? We're not doing anything wrong. We're just lying there singing a song. And it's not, and it just winds them up so much because there's nothing they can do about it. So you made an active decision to do women-only yeah. campaign. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, so had a, it had a completely different, I mean, there are pictures, and I've got the cop, still got a copy of the Greenham Factor, which is like a magazine thing, of police officers just scratching their head, like, we don't know what to do because, you know, they're not used, they weren't used to um, that kind of action. I think now it, it would be very different. I don't think it would work now. It worked back then because it was the first time. Um, you know, I've been picked up. Would you you'd get picked up? And it was one time I got thrown into the ditch on the side of the road. So you get out of the ditch and you go back again. And then you the same police officer would be like, oh, not you again. And it, it just went round and round. And in the end, they gave up because they couldn't do anything. 
The importance of gender wasn't only about the atmosphere on protests. Early on, it was decided that the camp should be women only. They wanted to use their identity of mothers to legitimise the protest against nuclear weapons. Their actions were in the names and safety of their children and future generations. The women also used their gender in symbolic ways during the protests. On April 1983, 200 women entered the base dressed as teddy bears. The childlike symbol contrasted with the highly militarised atmosphere of the male-dominated space, highlighting the impact it still had on their children and future generations of children. Even the longevity of the camp was a feminist statement. The women were saying they would not stay at home and do nothing, as they were traditionally expected to. However, the media questioned their behaviour, asking, if their children were so important to them, why aren't they at home with them? The women continued, however, and in one protest took pictures of their children and hung them on the fence. Candles were lit to mourn their future. These actions were not taken lightly by the authorities. On a number of occasions, they attempted to remove the women. Um, I was there when they were doing the evictions. Oh, we were doing things like um, getting supermarket trolleys when you came home and taking the wheels off and taking them back to Greenham and then attaching them to pieces of wood and then building your home on this thing so when the bailiffs were turning up, you could just push your home away on wheels. I mean, <laughs> some crazy things. I mean, talk about Heath Robinson. It wasn't a life most could lead forever, though. I think you can only do so much of it. Um, yeah, I, it was strange because um, I was still sort of living in a, uh, an area sort of knowing similar women and or people. Um, so I didn't, and yeah, I don't think my life's been the same since, to be honest thinking about it. I mean it's the kind of thing you think about but when sometimes now I think well, why did I do this or why did what happened there you know and it's a lot of it it's as a result of that period of time in my life. So you, you were on this camp for two years how was it coming back to normal? Well that's society? what I mean I, I was I was living in um, mid West Wales um, I lived in a caravan for a bit which was fine because I had a roof and everything. Um, and then I was sort of sharing a cottage and it was a bit of a hippie lifestyle, I suppose. But because, you know, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't as though I came back to living in London or something. I mean, some women did, actually. Um, I don't know how they managed with that, really don't. I mean, I was living in the middle of nowhere. You know, you look on a hill and you look out the window and there's no electricity cables or anything. So it wasn't that different a jump, you know. But and were you still doing your art at this point? Yeah, yeah. And I started, I used to finance myself um, by making um, women's symbol and peace symbol jewellery and stuff. I don't know how I did it, actually, because it's not any light, particularly, but I did. Uh, still, I mean, I don't know where it is now. I did find it recently, actually. Uh, I used to thread tiny beads um, and make, you know, peace symbols, like doing it on graph paper. And then, and so they moved like a little kind of curtain. Yeah, I used to do that and then sell them. The intensity of the previous two years seemed to drain Ellen. I mean, I haven't actually been to a demonstration. The thing is, when you've been to the really big stuff, and uh, people are different these days. Um, there was, you know, I was on the massive, the biggest ever CND 
demo that was in London um, was 250,000 people. I mean, aerial views of it were incredible. And I was on the plinths with Bruce Kent and, and all sorts of people. Um, so now demonstrations have got different. You know, the police are there in force. There's the people who go to demonstrations just to start a fight. You know, I don't eat McDonald's. I've never been McDonald's in my life. But I wouldn't throw a brick through their window. Whereas now that tends to happen at demonstrations. So I, I kind of keep away. As I spoke to Ellen, it struck me how burnt out she seemed. Sometimes she seemed to even question why she had even been there. I mean, some of the things I used to get angry about, you know, many, many years ago, um, you know, adverts for underwear on the tube or whatever it might be, you know, I'd be there with my can of spray paint. And now I'm like, oh, whatever. I, I mean, maybe that's just age. Or maybe I've done my bit, you know. A lot of the things that I used to um, do and think and believe or whatever as a real feminist, now I just think how ridiculous. There's more important things. But I'm still, I'm still, I'm still a feminist. I'm just not that kind of crazy feminist. And when I asked her what her legacy was, she said she had no idea before settling on none. She said when younger people found out she had been at Greenham, they treated her like a rock star. She found the whole thing a bit embarrassing, telling them it wasn't a big deal. So did any of this matter? Ellen seems to feel a bit silly now, thinking the world was going to end. After all, we are still all here. World War Three never did break out. But growing up as a child in the 80s, I do remember how real it felt. I remember in 1982 overhearing my parents say, we're at war, when the Falklands conflict broke out. I thought, is this it? Is this World War Three? After all, I had two parents who lived through World War II and grandparents who'd been through World War I. It didn't seem implausible that my generation would have its own major global conflict. So the fact it didn't happen was maybe because of the actions of women like Ellen. After all, on the 1st of August 1989, the first cruise missiles left Green and Common. It took nearly two years for all of them to be removed. The final one leaving for destruction on the 5th of March 1991. On this day, there was a party at Blue Gate, which was one of the closest to the women's camp. The US Air Force gradually withdrew and the base was formally handed back to the RAF in 1992. Six years after the last cruise missile left Greenham, the Green and Common Trust bought the airbase and Newbury District Council acquired the Commons. In a small ceremony, the Common Land was officially returned to the people of Newbury in April 2000. The fight may have ended for Ellen after Greenham, but for other women it would go on. After all, our planet was still in danger and wars still happen. Join us next time for more stories of Greenham and beyond. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. Better still, tell your friends about it. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the William Morris Big Local for funding today's episode.